एवरीवन दिस इज रोहित एंड थैंक यू फॉर जॉइनिंग मी फॉर अनदर एपिसोड ऑफ द आइडेंटिटी नेविगेटर टुडे वी विल टॉक अबाउट अ ब्रीफ हिस्ट्री ऑफ ऑथेंटिकेशन मैकेनिज्म सो लेट्स डाइव राइट इनटू इट टू ट्रूली अंडरस्टैंड द नेक्स्ट इन सिक्योरिटी वी नीड टू अंडरस्टैंड द व्हाट एंड हाउ बिहाइंड द करंट दैट मींस व्हाट लेड टू द नीड ऑफ करंट सॉल्यूशन and how can i break the current solution not everything is about the best in security it is about what's acceptable what's the acceptable level of risk that your business is willing to take user experience and security can be friendly but not the best of friends there is always a line that you will have to draw between user experience and security and that line can be said as risk appetite or risk acceptance like if security was not a concern i would not like to have a password on my laptop but if laptop belongs to the pentagon then i'll implement security even if it inconveniences me or the user of that laptop right but i but i digress let's deep dive into the history of authentication or password mechanism the evolution of authentication and authorization has been driven by the need of increased security and usability as technologies continues to evolve we can expect to see new authentication and authorization methods emerge each with its own strength and weakness but i'm pretty confident when i say that there would never be a solution which is 100% secure there would always be something that would be lagging or something a fault that would be found out and that would lead to creation of another solution so the passwords right or we can call them credentials or most specifically we should be calling them memorized secrets because every time we think about password we think about hey password 123 uh, and hopefully that's not your password so in ancient civilization like the romans they used passwords uh, or watchwords as a security measure in their military operations so imagine how how far we have come from that soldiers would use daily changing watchwords to verify that someone attempting to enter a guarded area or camp was a legitimate member of their group at night or during shifts a guard would challenge anybody approaching with a call for the password if the individual could not produce the correct password or the watchword they were often viewed with suspicious or treated as a potential threat so not really that different from today's memorized secrets or passwords but beyond military applications some ancient cultures also utilized password or coded language for secret rituals or to gain entry into exclusive gatherings now i have always tried to be a part of any such group but that's a story for my therapist moving on these early passwords were primarily verbal and based upon trust unlike today's complex digital passwords that undergo encrypted verification processes the principle though remains consistent password serves as a protective barrier to unauthorized access whether it's for a military camp or a digital account right but who is interested in 
how Romans use password. We are all interested in how the computers are using the password and what's the journey there. So diving right into it. The earliest use of computer passwords can be attributed to the rise of time-sharing computer systems in the 1960s. Before the era of personal computers, computing resources were expensive and limited. I think they still are, but not that much. As a result, multiple users would share access to a single computer system with each user allocated a specific amount of time to use the machine. So these were big mainframe systems taking over a room and then users were sharing these. So compatible time sharing system commonly known as CTSS, this was developed at MIT's computation center is often cited as one of the first computer system to implement password protection. It allowed multiple users to log in into the system and use it simultaneously. So it was pretty advanced if you ask me. To manage this and to ensure each user had their private area for files and programs, CTSS used a login and password combination. However, the concept of password security was still in its infancy. In the early days of CTSS, there was an incident where a user was able to print the entire file of passwords due to an oversight in the system's design, revealing the need for more robust security measures. It's fascinating to see how far we have come from that and still how many of the same basic problems still remains. So, so let's, let's see as to why this has evolved. So this earlier usage laid the groundwork for the widespread use of passwords in computing. But as the computer technologies advanced, so did the ability to crack passwords. In the 1980s, dictionary attack became a common technique for hackers to guess passwords by using a computer program that systematically tried every word in a dictionary until it found the right one. So users had their username and password and hackers just ran a loop trying every word possible in the dictionary. So a dictionary attack is a type of cyber attack in which an attacker attempts to gain unauthorized access to a system or service by systematically guessing passwords using a list of potential passwords. The idea is that many people use common words phrases or patterns for their password. Are you one of them? Which are easily guessable, especially when using a comprehensive list of likely candidates. So here is a breakdown of how a dictionary attack works. It has got three stages, preparation, systematic guessing and automation. It's, it's not very high tech, but <clears throat> the attacker compiles a list, which is commonly called as dictionary of commonly used passwords. These can be actual words from the dictionary, names, common phrases, or any other predictable combinations. And then systematic guessing. The attacker systematically tries every word or combination from the list until they either gain access or exhaust the list. And then automation. Dictionary attacks are typically automated. They require very limited computing power and they use software that can try try thousands of password attempts in quick succession. Can you guess now why the requirements of user account lockout came into the picture? So it's important to differentiate between dictionary attack and other type of password guessing attacks. 
So at a high level, we should be aware of three things. A dictionary attack, which you already know now, hopefully, a brute force attack and a hybrid attack. In a brute force attack, what happens is that the attacker tries all possible combination of characters until they find the correct one. So it's more exhaustive. It's more time consuming method than dictionary attack, but it can be more effective, especially against short passwords. And it has a higher probability of success than the dictionary attacks. And then there are hybrid attacks. So this attacks contains element of both dictionary and brute force attacks. An attacker might start with a dictionary word and then append or prepend numbers or symbols trying various combinations. Because as human beings, we are very predictable. So many of us use, oh, we need a special character. Let's use at the rate. We need a number. Let's use at the rate one, two, three or one, two, zero. And, and that is why it's easier for them to first use those combinations, which has a higher probability. So to combat the threat of dictionary attacks, password complexity was introduced, right? So you saw, you went from the Romans to the shared passwords, CTSS, MIT, dictionary attacks, brute force, hybrid, that led to the password complexity. This meant that the password needed to be longer and include a mix of uppercase and lowercase characters, numbers, and special characters to make them more difficult to guess. So basically what we are trying to do is, we are trying to decrease the probability of an attacker cracking our password. Now, can this probability ever be zero? With the rise of online banking and other sensitive digital transactions, two-factor authentication was introduced in the early 2000s. This required user to enter a password and a second form of identification, such as a fingerprint or a security token. So MFA or multi-factor authentication evolved from that two-factor authentication. So, you know, something you know, something you have, something you are, and, and then, you know, somewhere you are and things like this. So it has gone into multiple dimensions, but essentially multi-factor authentication is something you know that is a memorized secret now, when we talk about passwordless, this is what we are saying that memorization thing will go away. Something you have, something like your phone, you can get a SMS, you can get an email, you can have an author authorization or authentication app and something you are, your fingerprints, your iris scans, anything like that. And that's something you are is called biometric authentication which uses physical characteristics such as fingerprints, facial recognitions, iris scans to verify identity. So this has become increasingly popular in recent years. This eliminates the need of passwords altogether and provide a more secure method of authentication. But it does it at the cost of your privacy. So we have to find that balance between usability, security and privacy. And thank God for all the privacy laws out there. Password managers have also emerged as a popular solution to the problem of managing multiple passwords. The software programs generate and store unique complex passwords for each account. And hopefully all of us have probably used a password manager in the past. These password managers can also automatically fill them in when the user logs in. So even though the passwords are pretty long, they are complex, they are unique. Still, with this automatic fill-in feature, 
there is a sense of more usability <coughs> excuse me so what we have discussed so far is very focused on a user trying to access a resource but how can we extend the same concept to an enterprise or a group of resources so you have 20 applications in your company do you want users to use the same password which increases the risk exponentially however it's simpler for the user to memorize that password without writing it down or you want user to have 20 different passwords so you know where that is getting at right this led to the concept of federation and single sign on this emerged as a solution to the challenges posed by the growing number of digital services and applications that user needed to access so not just in enterprise case even with case of gmail and and google suite of applications we can use sso So as organizations started using more and more applications it became impractical and insecure for users to remember and manage multiple set of credentials thus came sso and federation so where we are with this journey we started from the romans we went to username and password in a digital world then we went into multi factor authentication and now we are trying to apply it to a group of resources or an enterprise and this is where federation or single sign on comes into the picture so the idea behind federation is to allow users from one domain to securely access data or system of another domain potentially owned by a different organizations this is crucial in scenarios like business participations where users from company a need to access resources of company p and saml which is security assertion markup language plays a significant role in enabling federation between organization we'll we'll come to that so the concept of federation was first introduced in the early 2000s and it has since become a popular authentication mechanism in early days of computing most computer systems operated in isolation So there weren't a need for SSO or federated identity. Users would log in to each system separately with distinct credentials. <laughs> with the advent of network systems in the 1980s, organizations began to see the need for SSO. The goal was to provide users with the ability to access multiple applications and systems by logging in just once. So early SSO solutions were typically proprietary and right tied to specific platforms or applications. Right? So we start using username and password. An SSO is basically in one domain or specific to a domain or you can call it security realm and federation is more across different security realms or different organizations right so sso came first and then the federation today these concepts could be used interchangeably but you know when we mean sso we means a single realm security realm and when we when we say federation we need more than one security realm now since these sso solutions initially were proprietary and tied to specific platform this led to the emergence of standards 
nothing about this we'll come back to this a little later but why did we need its standards in the first place right and now when we bastardize our authorization or authentication solutions and deviate from the standards we are essentially creating the same problems that we had in 1980s so by the late 1990s and early 2000s with the increase in number of web applications this led to an increased need for sso so industry standards started to emerge to address this one of them was saml or security assertion markup language this was introduced in 2002 and it became a foundational standard for federated identity and sso for web application so how would you explain saml to your 5 year old imagine you have a special toy box at home where you keep all your favorite toys but to open this toy box you need a special key your mom and dad have a master key that can open many boxes in the house including your toy box so your toy your favorite toys are in a box that is locked it needs a special key and your mom and dad have the key now imagine you go to your friend's house and they also have a special toy box instead of taking your key everywhere your parents came up with a smart plan when you go to your friend's house your parents give your friend's parent a note that says this is my child and they are allowed to play with their toys so now your friend's parent know that you are allowed to play with your toys so when you want to play with your toys at your friend's house instead of using a key that you had to carry and had to take a risk of losing it you just show the note to your friend's parents and the note said my kid is good give him the access or give her the access or give them the access they read the note and say okay you can play with your toys and then they open the toy box for you in this story the toy box is like a computer program or website that needs a special key or passwords to access the note from your parent this is saml it is a message that tells other computer programs or websites that who you are who you are and then you are allowed to use them and your friends parents checking the note and letting you play with the toy are not just good people but they are also the computer program or website checking the saml message and letting you in so saml is like a special note that lets you access things without always needing a key and then this evolved into oauth right it was originally introduced in 2007 and then later oauth 2.0 came into 2012 OAuth provides a method for third-party applications to access user data without exposing user credentials. So, even though we are talking about the history of authentication here, but I really wanted to touch upon OAuth because this is how we are progressing. Right? You don't want everybody to be aware of your passwords. You don't want your kid taking that key with them, right? So that is how SAML came in, and now it is about delegating. Somebody wants to. be able to post stuff on behalf of you on linkedin or post some of your tweets without deleting the other tweets so this is like an authorization or a delegated authorization type of mechanism coming into the place 
right so this oauth because of this need of the delegation came into picture because otherwise i would have to share my credentials with whoever wants to do things on my behalf and that would mean that they have complete access thus the need of oauth so oauth is an authorization framework that allows third party applications to access resource on behalf of a user and since its inception oauth has since become a widely adopted standards for web and mobile applications if you are an identity practitioner i am pretty sure you must have heard of oauth if you are an it executive trust me oauth is the shit all right now how do we understand oauth imagine you have a big box of crayons and you want to share some of them with your friend but you don't want to give your friend the whole box you just want to let them borrow a few specific colors so instead of giving your friend the whole box you ask your teacher to help your teacher creates a special similar box with just the crayons you want to share and you give that smaller box to your friend and then they can use those crayons without ever touching the rest in your big box makes sense to me so in this story your big box of crayons is like your online account with all your private information the smaller box of crayons that your teacher made is like oauth it's a way of giving your friend or another app limited access to your stuff without giving away everything and your teacher is like the online service that helps make sure only the right crayons are shared and everything else stays private <coughs> so oauth is like a special smaller box that lets you safely share some of your things without giving away everything as a twin it's called open id so oauth is all about delegated authorization now you understand why did we even need oauth because you don't want to share all your crayons with your friends but open id which was introduced in 2005 it allowed users to be authenticated by cooperating sites using third party services does it make sense authenticated by cooperating sites i don't know let's deep dive a little bit into this so this was introduced in 2005 and this is an authentication so imagine you have a special membership card for a big playhouse this card has your picture and name on it and with this card you can enter the playhouse anytime and enjoy all the games inside that's fancy now imagine that there are other fun places in town an ice cream parlor and a toy store so instead of making you get a new card for each place these places have a deal with the playhouse if you show your playhouse card they know you are a good kid and they let you in without needing another card similar to like a driver's license issued by DMV can also be used at airport to prove who you are so in this story your playhouse membership card is like open id it is a way to prove who you are the playhouse is like the website where you first got your open id and the ice cream parlor and toy stores are like other websites that trust the playhouse card and let you use your services without making a new card so open id is like having one special card that many fun places accept 
so you don't need a bunch of different cards <coughs> then we came to tokens so tokens are used to authenticate users and also authorize access to resources so that means there would be different type of tokens you know id tokens and session tokens and access tokens used for either identifying you or authenticating you or authorizing you the use of to- tokens has been around since the early days of computer networks but they have become more widely used in recent years with the rise of web apis and microservices right so token is a generic concept but when you really look into how are you implementing that token those are the concepts which are implemented today <clears throat> with something like a jot which is spelled as jwt or json web token so these are a type of token that is used to authenticate and authorize access to web apis super special stuff super important stuff especially if you have microservices architecture you need to look into the right way to implement jot in your organization jots were first introduced in 2010 as a way to simplify the process of exchanging authentication and authorization data between parties we'll deep dive more in in one of the future episodes as to what constitutes a jot what is the good type of or what is the good usage patterns for jot and what are some of the gotchas that you have to think through but for now i think you get the point api keys are another type of tokens so these are a type of token that is used to authenticate and authorize access to web apis and they are typically generated by the service provider and are used by developers to access the apis so these are in generic terms a password for an api i'm not a big fan of api keys but they do have its advantages and sometimes or in most of the times in any organization you would see a mix of api keys and jot tokens being used for authentication and authorization ideally you would like to have no api keys in the system that's the goal and that's a good goal to have but you would see a mix of mix of them <clears throat> the red flag is if you're only seeing api keys in in your ecosystem you need to start looking into the jot so jot an api keys differ in multiple ways i'll just highlight some of them a jot contains a payload that encodes claims claims as in this is the user this is their user id and whatever you want to contain the information about the user or anything else for that matter that is a claim inside a payload an api key is just a long string of random characters it doesn't encode any specific data or claims like a jot it just tells you that this api has access to this resource that's it there is no payload data there is no additional data that is coming within the api key jots can be signed to ensure that they haven't been tampered with using the hmac algorithm rsa or others the server can verify the signature of the jot and ensures its integrity and jot can also be encrypted api key as we discussed is essentially a secret and should be treated with the same level of security as a password there is no built-in mechanism for the api key to be verified in the same way as jot but the server can check if the provided key matches what's accepted 
or expected so once you have an api key or if you have an api key identify the governance process behind it who creates it who manages it who rotates it what's the lifetime of an api key things like these are super important because if somebody has access to the api key an api key do not decompose on their own they would be able to access the service forever unless you change the api key or create a new api key for that service because jobs have a built in expiration you can have a claim time to live expiry whatever after which they are considered invalid however if you need to revoke a jot before its expiration it can be challenging because jots are typically stateless right so you see the point right a server doesn't need to store anything for jot to work so they are stateless so revoking jot before its expiration could be complex and for that complexity i mean not implementation complexity but you would have to create a system that implements token blacklist to handle this scenario so you are still using or storing something on the server side maybe which defeats the purpose of it being stateless but we'll talk about the best practices now api keys can be valid indefinitely or until manually revoked revoking an api key is straightforward the server can simply remove the key from its list of valid keys right so you see there are trade offs it's not like api keys all bad and jot is all fancy often used in token based authentication systems jot is good for modern web applications mobile apps and my favorite single page applications API keys are commonly used to provide access to APIs especially for third party developers they are very widely used and they are also used to meter access track API usage rate limiting bill users based on their uses so in summary while jot tokens and API keys both deal with authentication and access jot are more sophisticated and can carry claims they are stateless whereas api keys are simpler and act as a straightforward access control mechanism <coughs> depending on the specific requirements of a system one might be more appropriate than the other or in some cases they might be used together and just fyi i'm a little under the weather so my apologies for clearing my throat every now and then uh I do not have a fancy condenser mic. I do not have a fancy recording drive. Uh this is because when I thought about creating this podcast, what I have done in the past is I have procrastinated. Like I wanted to learn Python a few years back and I was like I need to have the best Python IDE. I was about to buy a new MacBook so I'll I'll set everything up and then one day when everything is set up I will start learning Python I'll download the courses I will identify what the best books are and once everything is ready I'll start doing that and this has been a case with so many things in my life I I procrastinate to find that ideal setup before I start doing something 
and that my friends is called toolbox fallacy it, it, it just me blaming somebody else for not wanting to do anything or creating a circumstances where things can be delayed and still i do not own up to it so that is why when i started to think about creating a podcast i did not go in and buy the best recording tools or condenser mic or anything else i will probably someday if you folks give me enough love but for now it's just my iphone and it is good enough all right so that was tmi apart from jots and api keys we also have some other things certificates PKI is a big topic. Now is it an IAM topic? I strongly feel that the PKI team or the certificate team should be managed by the IAM teams or IAM leaders. But I've not seen that implemented at many places. So digital certificates are used to authenticate the identity of a user or device. Similar to JWT or an API keys or anything else. Now they are issued by a trusted third party certificate authority. and are commonly used in https connection to secure web traffic you must have heard about kerberos very quickly kerberos is is as a protocol it's a, it's a network authentication protocol that uses tickets kerberos ticketing system to allow nodes to provide their identity over potentially insecure channels and then radius it's again again a protocol it stands for remote authentication dial in user service it's a networking protocol providing centralized authentication authorization and accounting management triple a now today's sso solutions are more sophisticated and support a wider range of applications and platforms both on premise and in the cloud cloud based identity providers like azure ad okta google identity platforms they offer sso capabilities across a vast range of apps these are inbuilt and with the rise of mobile devices there is also a focus on providing sso across different device types so we spoke a little bit about federations and single sign on and, and ways of doing that now when you are implementing it think about your risk appetite what is the level of risk that you are ready to take and that would really define how much money you would like to spend and then think in terms of user types what do you want to do for enterprise identities what do you want to do for the business for different organizations like b2b use cases what do you want to do for the customers so b2c use cases what do you want to do for partners or resellers or retailers something like t-mobile having a partnership with uh, best buy and then what do you want to do for guest accounts so first think in terms of what is your risk appetite and then what is the user type technology is simple these are hard things now concerns and challenges with the sso the primary concern is that if a malicious actor gains access to a user's sso credential they can potentially access all applications linked to that sso so that is why sso is or should always be used with a multi factor authentication now this multi factor authentication could be seamless for the user right 
they could be logging in from their laptop only then we are not challenging the user with an sms or an email so multi factor could be seamless but it is always a good idea to pair your sso with an mfa and the evolution of federation and sso underscores the ever shifting balance between convenience and security in the digital realm as the digital landscape continues to change SSO and federation technologies will likely adapt to meet new challenges and user needs. There would never be a perfect solution. With the advent of quantum computing, it would be so much easier to break encryption algorithms and we will come up with something new. I'm very sure of this. What are the other things uh in the history of authentication? or I should I say a brief history of authentication risk based authentication so risk based authentication uses machine learning algorithms to evaluate the risk level of a login attempt so if i'm logging into my bank account from my home device that is already known to the bank they might not give me a second factor authentication but if i'm logging from a different device or from a different geographical location where i'm normally am not it can identify that there is a higher risk <coughs> and provide me an additional authentication step behavioral authentication i think this would be gaining a lot of traction with the new machine learning algorithms and and increased computational power that we have so this analyzes users behavior and identify patterns that are unique to you use that user so things like your typing speed mouse movements device usage patterns do you swipe from left to right up to down right to left and things like this the things that we cannot even think about emulating if we are trying to mimic somebody else so that is a very fascinating field for me and i'm really looking forward to what what's what's next in this space and then another is adaptive authentication adaptive authentication is a type of authentication that adapts to the user behavior and the context of the login attempt it uses machine learning algorithms probably i'm using machine learning too many times so it just uses algorithms to evaluate the risk level of a login attempt and adjust the authentication requirements accordingly So we went from everything from username and passwords to two factor authentication multi factor authentication certificates kerberos radius jot tokens api keys sso federation delegated authorization oauth open id there is just one things that i want to cover else So RN cookie is used for authentication. Every time we think about authentication, we have heard about cookies in the same breath. So cookies are a mechanism for maintaining state information between web pages or between web applications and web servers. They are not typically used for authentication purpose. Think of them like a container, but they can be used to store session IDs or other temporary authentication tokens. so cookies are the containers when a user accesses a web page the web server can send a cookie to the user's browser a cookie is 
is a fancy word for just a small text file that contains a unique identifier or other information that could be used to identify the user or their session. The browser stores the cookie on the user's device and on subsequent request to the same website, the browser includes the cookie in the request headers. This allows the web server to identify the user or their session and provide personalized content or maintain state information. So cookie can be used for multiple purposes. It could be used for remembering user preferences or tracking user behavior for analytics. They can also be used for authentication by storing a session ID or other temporary tokens. However, cookies are not a secure mechanism for authentication as they can be intercepted or manipulated by attackers. For this reason, cookies are typically used in conjunction with other authorization or authentication mechanism such as passwords or tokens. So what we need to really understand here is cookies are not an authentication mechanism per se, but they can be used to store temporary authentication tokens or other state information that is necessary for authentication purposes. Someday, uh, if and when we will get a chance, we should really deep dive into browser security. There are so many things that today's modern browsers does for us in terms of security that if we had to implement all of them from scratch, it would be such an Herculean task. So every time I open a browser, I am actually thankful to all the developers that did that. I'm being maybe a little dramatic, but I really respect the browsers uh, and, and how they provide us security. So not every time when I open, but every time I have a discussion about this. The most important point to note with everything that we discussed is that all of these things can be broken. You need to decide the risk appetite of your business. But most importantly, and this is really important, the devil is in the details. How are you sharing your API keys? How often do you rotate them? How are you signing the tokens? What is sent back in the claims? What is your cryptographic source of truth? Are you using the same token over and over? What is your time to live for a token? What is your expiration duration for a token? Those are the things that needs to really be looked at. As I said in the last episode, identity is known by all, but understood by few. While implementing authentication and authorization, seek the help of identity experts. And I'm not saying this to save my job but use best practices. Do not bastardize the solution and unless your company is not making money of it, prefer commercial of the shelf solution. And this is not me saying this, this is Google. Thank you for listening. I can be reached on LinkedIn or you can send me an email at theidentitynavigator at gmail.com. This is Rohit, your identity navigator. Till next time.